Welcome to Nightlife, the podcast. Living in an age when the impacts of a changing climate are becoming increasingly hard to ignore, you know, there's rising sea levels in the Pacific, prolonged drought, severe floods, those terrible bushfires that plagued Australia in late 2019 and early 2020. We don't really know, although we can guess and predict just how all of this is going to play out in the future. What is true, though, is that climate has always played a huge part of our history. While empires have risen and fallen for many complex reasons, famines, plagues, floods, the availability of fertile soil have all played a role and they're all tied directly to the climate. And of course, as humankind's history has progressed through time, so has our own impact on planet Earth growing greater. Well, historian Peter Frankopan has been exploring where the history of our climate meets the history of humankind in a new book called The Earth Transformed. Peter's also the author of the uh, the bestseller The Silk Roads. Uh, he's joined Nightlife tonight to take us on a journey through a, a different kind of history. Hello, Peter. Welcome to Nightlife. Hi there. Pleasure to be talking. Thank you for having me. Is a period of climate stability the norm at all as you take a long-term look back through history? I think our problem is as as a species, we measure time um, in slightly unusual ways. So, you know, for us, a five-day test match feels like an eternity. Um, but you know, in human history, we we tend to think that the Victorians, you know, it's a it's a different it's imagining a different world. Let alone, you know, the ancient Egyptians. Uh, but in geological time, that's not even a blink of an eye. I mean, that's that's not even a grain of sand in terms of time. So, often, if you look at geological history, you're measuring periods in their millions of years. Sometimes they're tens of millions of years. So uh, our, our problem is how we see ourselves and how we conceptualize the breakdown of every day that dawns and every year that passes. Um, I think that the, the real challenge, I guess, about the world today is that, as many listeners will know, there have been five extinction events in the world's history. Typically, those are caused by massive movements of um, volcanic, uh, massive movements of, of continental plates or of enormous volcanic activity, um, or the very famous um, meteor strike in Chichiclub in Mexico. Did the uh, dinosaurs in? Yeah. The dinosaurs. And I, I'm looking forward to, there's a movie coming out about that that I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, any minute now. Um, and uh, the difference is that uh, is that not just is the current pace of change one that is being uh, dramatically driven by human activities, it's the speed of those biodiversity losses are far faster than those five mass extinction events in the past. And uh, some of your listeners will have extremely strong views, I'm sure, about uh, human humans' role in the change of climates. But the accelerated pace at which we're seeing this kind of change is something that is is really worrying because you know, it's like being in the fast lane of a motorway and you can see that the traffic has stopped in front of you and you're putting the brakes on. And it's just a question now what level of impact uh, might come uh, as a result of, of what's coming towards us. But taken as a long run, the, the climate of the world has always changed. The natural world has always changed. But we are the apex, we humans, because we, we communicate, we work in different ways to other species on this planet. And, you know, we've developed wonderful things, you know, symphonies and sonatas and buildings and uh, etc. But we've also developed the capacity to be incredibly stupid and to burn more carbon than we can uh, c- can restore. And also, you know, that goes alongside weapons of mass production, the ways in which we have been able to inflict violence on each other. So the long term histor- historian like me is trying to look at why have we got to the point where here we are in 2023. If you were starting a movie, this would be Tom Cruise hanging on the side of a skyscraper with one hand. Uh, thinking, you know, you might, you might, might fall. Uh, Tom Cruise sometimes manages to pull himself. In fact, he normally does manage to pull himself back up the top of the skyscraper and survive. But the the situation facing us right now is precarious, and we don't need the flooding in New South Wales or the droughts of the last few years, or the the current as we're speaking, the worst uh, wildfires in Goa's history, uh, or last summer uh, plumes of of, uh, of of change created by both two things. First, the big Siberian forest fires that were naturally caused. And then the volcanic eruption in Tonga that 
you know, th- those dramatic images many many listeners will have, will remember, that had the force of a hundred times the bomb that went off in Hiroshima, that was detonated wow. in Hiroshima in 1945, and has injected the highest column of debris into the atmosphere ever recorded, and is probably playing a role in some of the climate events we're seeing at the moment. So mm. integrating what is our role as a species, what are the natural causes, but, you know, volcanoes, the sun, the tilt of the earth, all these things all, all dovetail to create these, uh, these conditions in which we live. Yeah. Now, Peter, towards the end of our conversation, I want to get more into the the human impact on the earth. But I sort of did want to step back through a few historical moments because um, I guess, you know, you mentioned these these five mass extinction events. And when you look at the the volcanoes that have gone off, the earthquakes, just the the sheer changes in temperature, of course, since the formation of the earth. uh, You know, there used to be so much more carbon in the atmosphere that was sucked back down and is getting released again, for example. But you've got this sort of period of, of instability going back, you know, billions of years but then you talk about the Holocene it's this period that starts about 10,000 years ago and this is a period right in which the climate has been comparatively more stable. Yes broadly speaking yes but I mean 10,000 years ago is is not not that long I mean um, uh, in in the grand scheme of things but 10,000 years ago Australia was 30% bigger than it is today Um, so what what happens when you have sea level rises that come typically from more stable conditions and a warming earth that as the world comes out of an ice age, um, you, you find change. And that change probably, if you measure it in the case of Australia, um, happened around about maybe 10 metres per year, you know, more or less unmeasurable. If you live by the coast, the sea just seemed to keep on, would have seemed to keep on coming. But we, we find settlements, in fact, uh, colleagues and scholars in, in Australia have found uh, human settlements 160 miles off the coast of Australia. And I think that gives a quite a useful clue to say, well, there's no such thing as a kind of, this is what the world has looked like. This is how, uh, this is how we, can, we, we can stop the clock. But some of those sort of obvious things, I guess, about the deep distant past is previous climatic changes explain why it is that we find the world's giant hydrocarbon fields in the relatively few pockets around the world that then shape the politics of the Middle East and global affairs. You know, here we are in Europe, we are not energy secure and have relied, um, maybe over relied on gas and oil being pumped from Russia. And suddenly our vulnerability is the the luck of geology rather than just uh, strong men in Moscow means that the the way in which global politics plays out is a function of of these great natural events from the past. And I think that 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 gives a little bit of humility, I think, in looking at, at, at history, but also making us think that, you know, history isn't just about great men and great women or great events. It's also about trying to understand that the natural environment is the kind of stage on which human history plays out. And in fact, not just our species, the histories of all other species too. And that, I think, is quite a good starting point uh, by thinking around when the Holocene starts, so about 10,000 years ago, the, the world's climate becomes more stable, a bit warmer, uh, low, but higher levels of, of um, the better concentrations of balances of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the atmosphere that allow things like agriculture to start picking up in a few specialised niches around the world by the Nile, in the Levant, in Mesopotamia, and parts of India, northern India and China. And that starts to set in motion that the most important thing, it's not, not agriculture or cities or the big headline things that academics like me love to give lectures about, um, but it sets in place the nitty gritty of demographic growth. So if you have calorie availability, you're likely to live longer. If you have more reliable food sources and lots of water, then you know the chances of you hooking up with other people and producing offspring and them surviving, uh, they, they might start to rise. And that sets in place the kind of intensification of our of our colonization of this planet. And by but you know, long before the Holocene started, you have human populations in Australia and have scattered back all over the world. But there's clearly a process of um, urban settlements of cities that then spark a whole sequence of things like property rights, like who's cl- who lives closest to the water, uh, who rules, who controls labour forces, uh, and that that spurs things like writing systems, the growth of religions, explanations for why does it rain a lot or why doesn't it rain at all or why do good things happen to bad people and vice versa, and that sequence of of deep history then then brings us towards thinking around what those writing systems tell us, not just what humans were doing, but what do they think they were doing. And that, that's the kind of boundary breakthrough for, histor- for historians like me, which is around about 5,000 years ago. The first writing systems allow us to not just track how people are living, but what they're thinking. And that, that's a hugely significant moment because 
it can tell us about all the biases, prejudices, and the, and the sort of challenges that people face. And, and climate and the natural engagement with the natural world is, is an absolutely critical part of that. Uh, Peter Frankopan is my guest on Nightlife tonight. You're with Suzanne Hill on ABC Radio across the country. His new book is called The Earth Transformed. Now, I think we have an idea, Peter, that human populations have been constantly growing and expanding, that it's been you know linear in one direction. But you talk about the early history of humans saying that the stories are often populations settling in new areas and then abandoning them. And you actually talk about evidence that suggests that populations that came out of Africa went back later. Yeah, well, the good news about all of this, I mean, and it's, it's, I, I feel like a, like a child in a sweet store. Um, uh, it used to be that we, people had hypotheses and sort of theories, but because of advances in the sciences, we now have volume, you know, huge amounts of new materials and highly accurate that can tell us things that you know, maybe confirm uh, what we believe uh, or tell us something completely new. And things like uh, genetic sequencing and genomic data allow us to be able to tell where people are moving to. Even in some cases, we can detect from a strontium analysis from their, from their teeth enamel what people are eating and how far away did those foods come from. You know, you're just eating what's grown locally or you having luxury foods that come from further away. And, and that, that gives such great granularity or oh, that's a terrible word isn't it to use on the radio such great detail to how we can think about the past so things like migrations out of africa are uh, trigger a sequence for example of, of genetic mutations in skin coloration so there's there are higher levels of differentiation of skin colors in africa than there are outside africa may way higher africa has much higher levels of genetic differentiation to european and, and other other populations within the other continents and that's partly a function of you know you you survive within the environment that suits you and light skin for example uh, is more beneficial in um, northern latitudes or higher latitudes because it's better at absorbing vitamin D, which you need if you're not exposed to much higher levels of sun, sun, sunlight. And so the, the process of, of thinking around how, how do populations go and choose where to live, you know, it's all the things that make listeners want to live in Perth or Sydney or London or the south of France. You know, you choose a location that is environmentally uh, sustainable, that's appropriate, that produces water, electricity, energy, all the things we want in today's world. And one of the stories about the past is that if, for whatever reason, that ecosystem fails, you know, there are too many people, or you chop down all the trees and there aren't, there's not enough firewood anymore, or the water gets polluted, then those communities fail. And our human history, taken as a species as a whole, is also very much about locations that don't work, as well as the ones that do. And I guess, you know, if we think about... Uh, places like Australia, the kind of European way of settlement of big cities, you know, it's, it's very, very recent, you know, from the late 1700s onwards. But the, the communities that have survived there beforehand were extremely robust, extremely sensitive to ecological niches that were, were meant that sustainability was the key. And I think that we think about sustainability in today's world as something that's kind of new and connected to the hippie movement and to climate activists telling us to be careful what we eat. But it it, it's not a mystery that if you if you spend more than you earn or if you live beyond your means, that not only can you face crisis, but you can face very dramatic crisis. And cities that have failed in the past in different zones, in different periods, in different regions, speak to the fact that if you if you push the envelope too far, if you live beyond your means, you know you you disappear in a puff of smoke. And lots of the cities that I work on, places like Panjikent or Merv. Uh, or Kaifeng, or places that really don't have great uh, names in history, or Harappa, Mohenjo-Daro, and so on. Uh, those kinds of places are, were victims of their own success. The, the people want to go and live in places that are burgeoning. You can, you can trade more, you can learn more, you can meet more people. But that balance means that you're precarious and, and big places are vulnerable. I mean, this is one of the points you make, that we've got these cities and settled areas that get bigger, but that means that when you have a drought, when you have a, a famine, that all has a bigger impact as well. Um, now, you, you write in the book about the curse of Akkad, which uh, hit the uh, the Akkadians. Tell us a bit about uh, Akkad and Arcadia. Well, so you have these big... I'm so, I'm so grateful to be on your show, Suzanne. It's so lovely to be able to talk about history. And if, if only all my students were as eager and keen as your listeners. So thank you so much. I mean, I'm and pinching look, myself. you basically got the biggest history nerd presenter that you could oh, hope I, for. I, I love it. The idea I'm on, on the radio in Australia talking about Akkad and the Babylonian civilizations and Mesopotamia. So in Mesopotamia, the, the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates is one of the kind of key cradles of civilization. And uh, that's a slight sort of... That, that, that needs a slight sort of corrective because we like 
archaeologists and historians love cities. We love rulers. We love people who are rich. And we love inequality because people build palaces and temples. But actually, it's a cradle of civilization. I mean, literally, in the sense of it's where cities are built. So mobile peoples, I have, a, as you know, because when we talked about the Silk Roads a few years ago in Sydney, um, you know, I, I burn a candle for the nomadic peoples who are able to move around and to respond to challenges. But people who live in cities, they build these structures that mean that uh, if something goes wrong, something goes very, very badly wrong. And around 4,200 years ago or so, uh, we pick up data signals in, in the climate record of mag magnesium spikes from caves in Iran and fossilised pollens in Oman that tell us that the, the sudden hysterical literature that's being written around this time that says... Um, you know, we're all suffering. People go onto their roofs and they die. Um, there's not enough food. There's sudden water shortages. The droughts are nothing like anybody's ever seen before. And the question then is, um, why, why, is why has this happened? And one of the uh, explanations is that the rulers of Akkad, uh, Naram Sin, is the grandson of the great Sargon. Sargon was the kind of Donald Trump of the, of the Mesopotamian world. You know, he put up statues to himself and inscriptions saying you know, he was by far the best. Any other leader before him was absolutely useless. And the explanations are, well, obviously, somewhat has offended the gods because we're being punished for, for, by divine anger for dishonouring. Uh, and um, it looks like we can correlate these texts with changes of climatic uh, behaviour. And uh, those kinds of things in the Curse of Akkad uh, produce a series of, of events that look contemporaneous around lots of different parts of the world about the same time where something has happened that causes stress. And the problem is stress is, is manageable if you're in small communities. If you live in big cities and your wheat supply fails or your water fails, uh, that's where the vulnerability comes from. So you, you see a series of, of changes in these great empires of the time where there's a lot of compression but it's not it's not distributed all equally and actually humans are very very resilient so things can fail and what i write about in my book i say you know if you're if you're an, a member of the elite if you own a palace or a temple you're one of the priests and, and other people are working you for free uh when there's a failure like this and rioting and so on and, and food supply and death and disease uh, obviously that's not great for you but if you're one of the poor, one of the people who has to work in the fields, uh, it's not completely clear that uh, the fact that the social structure changes, that that's bad. So collapse is bad if you're at the top of the pyramid, but maybe it's not bad. And maybe it's even good if you're lower down. So the Akkadians are eventually part of a sequence of empires that rise and fall. And climate is never the kind of key driver. It's never the, the thing that makes things happen. But it's always a straw that breaks the camel's back. And I guess relating that to today's world... Uh, you can cope with floods and, and droughts in, in Australia if you've got good trade relations and your food supplies and your energy supplies work. But that's more complicated with, a, with China and the trajectory it's on, with uh, Russia likewise, with inflation, with costs of living, uh, with shortage of goods. And, and very small events that happen a long, long way away can suddenly put pressure on the working classes, on cities, on the way in which we think we can live. And I think that's, that's very, very clear to us in today's world, that throw in climate onto, on top of all these political risks, on top of energy, on top of rising populations, on top of energy needs, and, and suddenly things can look suddenly quite scary, which is uh, something that the Mesopotamian people would have, and the Akkadians would have recognised just as we do today. So what happened to Akkad? Well, you know, you have... Again, related today, you, if you have leaderships that don't respond very well, and then the House of Cards come tumbling down. In fact, Naram Sin, who's the, the, the victim of, or supposed to be the, the central point of this curse of Akkad, uh, in fact, within his own lifetime, so within 20 or 30 years, is able to centralise power. So, in fact, one of the things that happens curiously when cities and states come under stress, it provides opportunities for, for people to centralise and take more control rather than less. But one of the problems you have in Mesopotamia is that you need energy sources and energy, the, the prime energy source before the Industrial Revolution is above all trees. You know, that's why you can generate heat that you need not just to warm yourself, but to cook, obviously, and also to be able to um, uh, uh, create the technologies that you want, like ships, etc., etc. And the Mesopotamians cut down all the trees extremely quickly because um, why wouldn't you? So uh, lots of timber starts to be imported over longer distances. You have lots of you have texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the kind of great epic histories of the past, that, that explains if you cut down the trees, you're going to be punished by God too. So lots of these empires, including the Akkadians, run into resource and logistical shortages, 
and they sit within a network of trading zones with Egypt, with uh, the Mesopotamia, with the Indus Valley, and when those, or, or India, northern India at this point, and uh, when one of those sort of, a bit like a Jenga tower, when one bit of the column is taken out, eventually it can come tumbling down. So the Akkadians fall, but eventually you find others that, that take their place, eventually until you see the great civilization of Egypt under Cleopatra, which listeners will remember from their carry-on films or from their schools. Uh, we, I don't know quite why we teach the Egyptians to kids all around the world, but we do, maybe because the pyramids help with maths or something like that and triangles. Uh, but Cleopatra, Come on, they're when, just when so it, exotic, aren't they? And they're still the, there, and they've got the great well, th- big statues and the the well, graves I, I think, that have been robbed. I, I think that's. I mean, of course, that's right. I think it's also that we kind of think we can relate to the fact that that the the Romans, in particular, took over what's now Egypt, and why that happened wasn't because Cleopatra was a woman or married a brother or made bad decisions. In fact, she was extremely skillful political leader, multilingual, extremely well-educated, uh, both brave and talented. But one of the things that leads to the fall of Egypt to the, Roman, to the Romans is a volcanic eruption in Alaska that takes place almost exactly the same time as the murder of Julius Caesar. And your re- listeners who, who remember the Roman history will know that after Julius Caesar was murdered, his assassins are all hunted down one by one and picked off. And at that point, um, Egypt reaches a period of failure because the Nile, which brings up the floods that that water the fields, fails, probably either closely related or directly related to the ejection of lots of atmospheric debris by this Okmok um, volcano in Alaska. And that puts Cleopatra in a difficult position because, well, she's a woman, number one. Number two, she's not actually Egyptian. She's the descendant of a Greek general who'd accompanied Alexander the Great. And there are lots of opportunists. Just look at Australian politics. God forbid, look at British politics of chances always trying to put themselves into the number one spot. And when you find food shortages, uh, inflation that comes as a result, crisis of confidence in the leadership, uh, Cleopatra does what a smart ruler would do, which is you look for an you look for an outside ally who can strengthen your position, and uh, she figures that the right person to do that to, to attach to is Mark Antony, the darling of the Roman army, uh, great military track record. You know he looks good in boots and breeches, um, but it turns out she backs the wrong horse, and Octavius instead manages to ambush them and get hold of them, take over Egypt. As a result, Cleopatra and Mark Antony both end up dying. And it just happens that the Romans not just take over Egypt, but the next two or three hundred years of that great Roman Empire that you think of Russell Crowe and uh, Gladiator is a time when you don't have volcanic eruptions. You have climate stability. And the Roman Empire is the great lottery winner of climatic patterns that stay stable. And so the volcano is uh, good for, uh, bad for Cleopatra, good for the Romans. Uh, Peter Frankopan is here. This is Nightlife on uh, on ABC Radio. His uh, his new book is called The Earth Transformed. Uh, look, it's taking away, a I guess, at the the way that climate and human civilizations, human uh, well, human history has interacted. And uh, one of, as I said, you know, Peter, one of the points you make, sometimes it's luck, sometimes it really is the straw that breaks the camel's back. As in this example of uh, Cleopatra you were just giving, he was doing okay until this volcano caused all sorts of things, including a, a famine which made her weak. And there she goes. She looks to uh, to Mark Antony, who, as you say, is is the wrong horse. Volcanoes feature a lot in this, in this history. And one of of the things I was really struck by, you talk about uh, the volcano uh, that left the Greek island of Santorini, a kind of smoking caldera in 1600 BC, and lots of people have probably been there and seen it. Seen it. But you reckon that probably played a role in the emergence of smallpox. Can you draw that connection for us? Well, so uh, again, I mean, it's a, well, it's a great question. Uh, as all of us know, because the last three or four years, if, if we've been talking about pandemic disease and pathogens, you know, people would have looked pretty blank. And in fact, that was one of the things I'd been doing before this book came out, before the pandemic, was trying to give the government here some advice around uh, response to, to, to pandemics, which they, they weren't particularly interested in. Um, but there are a whole load of emerging infectious diseases, they're called, and many of them are highly resistant to climatic shifts and changes. Uh, And when the Santorini volcano uh, goes off about 1600, maybe 1650 BC, it again puts debris into the atmosphere and changes conditions that allow or that that provoke changes in in other organisms that we share this planet with, other, other plant lives, other animal lives and pathogens too. And the correlation of, of the variola virus 
which is what lies behind smallpox, uh, looks like that there's a, a strong correlation both in terms of timing but also in terms of causation. And it looks like that the, the shift allows for a breakthrough moment for uh, a pathogen to develop into something that spreads into humans and then causes somewhere around 300 million deaths over the next uh, millennia or two. And uh, that, I think, is quite similar to other incidences and periods we have in history, uh, plague in particular. Um, but you need, exactly like we had with the with the coronavirus breakout of Wuhan, pathogens on their own are not the problem. The problem is that uh, if you jump on airplanes and every area on Earth is 18 hours apart, then disease is spread. So you need vectors that can take disease and push them from one community to the next. And cities are the best place that that can happen. So, I mean, there's a reason why we were all told to stay indoors. It felt like for years. I mean, it was for years uh, during the coronavirus. It's to try to stop you from breathing on each other, coughing on each other and infecting each other. And uh, by and large, if you live in rural communities, you don't see each other that often. So your levels of exposure and risk are are usually lower. But those those ways in which our trade routes are, you know, the ways we communicate, the way we travel, etc., uh, are the the glories of how we live, Suzanne? Like you, like you said, you know, this wonderful planet we live on, the wonderful things that we can all do together, uh, you know, can be an Achilles' heel, and diseases jump on those as vectors. So another example would be uh, another volcanic eruption in uh, Tambora, in uh, what's now Indonesia, in 1815, comes off the back of a couple of other eruptions that happened uh, a couple of years beforehand. And that changes the, uh, the the aquatic biology of the Bay of Bengal and allows cholera to become endemic in Bengal. And then it spreads through pilgrim routes. It reaches Mecca, it goes through into Russia, into Europe, and then becomes a proper killer globally. Now, cholera sat there for a long time, but the spark is provided by changes to, uh, bi- to the plant biology and the pathogen biology and to the human biologies that allow... Uh, allow these kinds of transmissions and I think it's very interesting that we need to you know I think we should think more about what happens when there are changes to the natural environment caused not just by our own activities but by the layering of volcanic change aquatic biology pathogens the way we travel uh, that those all those all form a kind of cocktail that proves lethal on their own each of them isn't necessarily so dangerous but you know having said that Tambora again it's not, not my idea but a very clever scholar um, pointed out a long time ago that um, the changes to the world's uh, atmospheric conditions in the two years that followed led to things like the writing of Frankenstein, where Byron, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley went on holiday to Lake Geneva, I suspect in, in search of nice clean air and, and good, good light to paint and go skinny dipping. And it rained all the time, thundered all the time. So they started telling each other ghost stories. And uh, Mary Shelley's version was immortalised in, in, in Frankenstein, which is filled with thunderstorms and rain all the time and so on. And, and that, that has a context where you know, it wasn't because of the volcano, it wasn't because of the rain, but it produces the context where we can think about the fact that we, we always respond to uh, the natural world that we live in and the climatic zones that we live in. I mean, wasn't Turner painting, painting stunning sunsets around this time as well, inspired by the way that, that the sky looked for a couple of years after Tambora? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I think all those things are absolutely gripping, I think, about thinking, well, how do we measure the levels of haze in the atmosphere? How should we look at art and literature, as 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 you've just done with with Turner, um, as well as the political changes? So one of the things that happens as well because of this particular eruption, or maybe sequence of eruptions in the early 19th century, is that um, it causes harvest harvest failure across Europe, where it just happens that this is the time after, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, lots of men are returning home after being away, and the role of government is is changing as well. And uh, when you have those kinds of pressures, it can lead to social and political change. And in in the case of United Kingdom, there are demands for greater levels of representation in Parliament, higher levels of democratic rights. And um, that's put into, I think, sharp focus by the fact that people are worried about that they don't have enough food and the, and the prices of of wheat are going up in particular and the aristocrats who've been able to protect their farms and their farming interests suddenly come under pressure to um to 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 drop uh to, to make to make food cheaper and in the case of the united kingdom that leads to the peterloo massacre where 
troops fire on protesters. And that, that produces a sequence of events that eventually, it takes 100 years, by the way, for everybody to get the vote, including women. Uh, it takes a lot, it, start, it starts a sequence that becomes very, very important for historians in how we think about who, hold, who held rights, how is wealth concentrated, and how does that change? But there is a factor in there around if you are used to producing X amount of food, and for whatever reason you're, you're producing less, then those patterns of demands for change, lack of credibility in government structures, demands that the elites give up more of their powers and their rights and share the wealth, those are recognisable sequences that, again, has a resonance in in the world of, of today and the, certainly the world of tomorrow. Mm. I know historians love to look at what really happened, but don't you sometimes think, how would the world be different if Mount Tambora hadn't exploded that year and produced this year without a summer? You know, history could have taken an entirely different course. I think it could have done. I mean, I, t- I mean, gosh, well, stop me when I'm boring you, Suzanne. I'm so grateful. I mean, if you want, if you want my favourite counterfactual that I write about in the book, um, that's to do with volcanoes too, is that we all are aware of the great Islamic empire that was built by the followers of Muhammad in the early se- in the early 600s. So. Uh, as a sort of very quick one paragraph primer, you have a, a war between the Persians and the Romans that has gone on for 30 years and eventually both exhausted fail and their space is taken by a huge Arab empire that eventually unites North Africa right the way through more or less to the Himalayas. And most of those countries today, they're, they're Muslim majorities, all of them, uh, they are high levels of Arabic speaking dialect different but they have similar cultures similar ways of building structures of build of what they eat etc etc a unification of what empires do you know that's we know from lots of other empires uh, if you had been a betting man or woman at exactly this moment around about six thirty, uh you'd have bet that the people who would take over the world wouldn't be the arabs but would be a tribe called the turks and I don't mean the Turks as in Erdogan's Turks and the, the Turks who come later with the Ottomans, but a, a nomadic conglomeration, confederation, that at this point are sitting across the whole of Eurasia. And they are not just important and well-structured, well-organised. Like I've already said, I love the nomadic peoples. They're hugely undervalued in their sophistication and their skills. But they are the power breaker, the power broker. So the Romans and the Persians both appeal to not to the Arabs for support, they appealed to the Turks to say, you decide who is going to win this war. And in a moment of enormous drama, the Roman emperor uh, meets the, the ruler of the Turks and offers up his daughter as a, as, a, as a wedding price, as a bride, which has never been done before. And absolutely this moment where the Turks could have expanded into a world that maybe would have brought a Buddhist world from North Africa right the way through to China. Maybe a world where we thought about horsepower, nomadism, different different forms of food that we'd have eaten. We'd have worn different kind of clothes. Um, it just so happens that in 626, uh, there are a, a big volcanic eruption that leads to massive livestock loss. These, these losses by, by in these harsh winters in Central Asia can be enormous. There's one in, in Turkmenistan where over the course of one night a million livestock die in the early 20th century. But if you want a, a way in which the world might have looked different, it would have been a no-band-controlled world that united Europe, North Africa and Asia. Buddhism would have been the dominant world religion. The languages would have been completely different. The way we dressed, eat and so on, like I said. And through the flip of an ecological switch... The nomad empire went from being the power maker, not just at the western end of the steps with Rome and Persia, but at the same time, they were absolutely critical in controlling China. The whole thing melted in the space of 18 18 months. And that, I think, if you want a way in which how things could look differently without a volcanic eruption, with the with the deck of cards being pulled out in a slightly different way, that's that's my kind of favourite way in which one could think about the world later. And, And in fact... The Mongols do something very similar 700 years later in the, in the 1200s. They build this massive empire. Yeah, again, I wanted to get to the Mongols yeah. because this is so interesting because you talk about the rise of the Mongol Empire and the way that you reckon that eventually contributes to the severity of the Black Death or, or the plague. So we've got, let's start with the Mongols. And this is sort of the rise of, I think, Temujin in the late 12th century who oversees this massive expansion. It goes into China and Central Asia. Uh, and is it because the rains were really good? Well, so the the, the step, the, the step, the step. Well, the world of the steps. I, I do occasionally get listeners who will email me and go, "I don't understand what you're talking about." You mean steps, like like outside a building? The steps with two P's and an E, S T E P P E. The steps are these flatlands 
that run from the Black Sea through what's now Ukraine, southern Russia through Central Asia, more or less as far as the Pacific and up to the Korean Peninsula. And those are home to the great um, wildlife stocks that have helped provide cities with the protein, the dairy and the textiles that they need. So the steppe worlds, the nomads who live there are crucial in our global history stories. Not just they have their own story that we should tell, but they are connected directly to our own. And obviously what matters then is um, what's the pasture like for um, the the sheep, the livestock, but above all the horses. The horses are the kind of the tank, the the jumbo jet, the Ferrari of the past. They are absolutely central in military, in trade and everything else. And um, there's a sequence of very heavy, um, unusually high rainfall in the end of the 1100s, early 1200s, that suddenly produce massive pasture land that allow flocks to be able to grow. I mean, herds to be able to be bigger than ever. And a very skillful um, uh, ruler, he's a He's a, no one would have bet on a guy called Temujin. He becomes better known as uh, Chinggis Khan, uh, or universal leader. And uh, he's able to build a nomadic confederation, just like the one I spoke about, about the Turks a few hundred years earlier, that is able to use violence selectively and brutally. Uh, the city of Nishapur is, is destroyed. And we, we, we read in the reports that the columns of skulls are built that are so big they can be seen from miles away and clearly the mongols are aware how to use those threats but the mongols have turned out to be incredibly sophisticated uh uh regulators of of markets so they want as much trade as possible they're quite low in their tax thresholds they lower taxes they create infrastructure that allows people to travel and communicate quickly and build a world that we think of as kind of violent and unstable but actually is incredibly well-oiled machine that allows multi-climatic, multi-regional zones and peoples to communicate. And uh, what happens uh, about 100 years into Mongol rule over a large part of Asia is that it's well, it's three things. First, you have another climatic episode that, that reduces global temperatures. We're not exactly sure which is the primary trigger and the genetic stuff is incredibly interesting and fast moving in this field. Uh, that's one. Second is that these trade routes are, are, are quicker and faster and better than ever. That's the vector that allows disease to spread. But third, you've had um, in the 1330s, in Italy in particular, uh, warfare and failure of harvests that mean that wheat coming from what's now Ukraine um, becomes incredibly valuable and uh, shipping from the Black Sea is on a very high scale. And the pathogen jumps onto these ships, not just in the rats that we sort of learned about in the past, but probably also in wheat supplies uh, and in textiles, you know, hiding in the, in, the, in, the, in the fabrics. And that, as it reaches Europe, probably leads to population loss of around 40, maybe even 50% in some regions. And uh, that's devastating. I mean, ironically, everybody alive today on Earth are descendants of people who survived the Black Death. And that's quite sort of sobering, I think, to remember we've all we're all descendants from animals, organisms that survived the fire, the, the, the mass extinctions. Everything alive today has managed to navigate. We were on the lucky side of that equation. And, uh, you know, then what happened as a result of the Black Death, as a very clever colleague of mine at Oxford, Jamie Belich, has just written about um, that meant that suddenly there were more carts available. Things cost less. Uh, there were a few people going to buy stuff that protein levels were, were, became cheaper. And the, the, the benefits of the, of the pandemic at that time, once the dead had been buried and the traumas had been negotiated, pe- poets like Petrarch writing, you know, again, in, in ways that all of us who lived through the pandemic, you know, maybe we'll never see our friends again. I used to enjoy going to have a glass of wine and talking nonsense with my best buddies. And now here I am sitting alone, thinking I'm going to be locked up inside forever. Very poignant. But as a result of that, there's a kind of galvanization of uh, and a recalibration of society because people who are poor and uh, uh, were, were the labour force can charge more for their work, for their manpower. And that leads to a sort of invigoration of social structures, of horizons changing, people having more disposable income. And also young people saying, I'm not going to save because this might come again. So I'm going to live like there's no tomorrow and enjoy myself. And that produces boosts in literature, in architecture, in fashion, where people sort of live, live like, there's no, like there's no tomorrow, a bit like the 1920s. You know, you've had the traumatic events of, horror, of horrors of warfare, of seeing your loved ones die. 
But the Mongols are a key part of the development of this process. And in fact, when the Black Death comes back round and devastates the Mongol world, it leads to a trigger of collapse. And I will come back, if you ask me, Suzanne, to tell you about the great Lithuanian empire that steps into the Mongol world, reaches the Black Sea, reaches Crimea, because the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth is the largest European empire in history and uh, doesn't get much attention. It does but I think not. That, 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 that's, 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 that's one for another book or, or another podcast. Yes, I was going to say, I can see that time is, is starting to sort of look a, a little bit small and I realise that I've spent most of the time stuck well and truly in the, uh, in the deep, dark past instead of the more recent or I love it, Suzanne. I, I, well, anytime you want me, I will come. If we can talk about history, I mean, I'm so grateful. So thank you. <laughs> um, oh, look, oh, I mean, where to go, uh, really? I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because you, you talk about the way people view the environment basically over the millennia. And there's this idea that uh, nature is there to be tamed, that the world is there to be shaped so that humans can dominate it and get what they, they want out of it. Do you think we've actually let go of that idea yet? No, I think we've made it much worse. I mean, I think you, you have people worrying uh, two and a half, three thousand years ago about human impact on the environment and the natural world and realising that sustainability, if you chop down all the trees or if you poison people's water supplies, uh, that existence is precarious. And there were lots of scholars writing uh, in the ancient Greek world, for example, or in ancient India, talking around what the consequences are if you get the ecological balance wrong. You know, I mean, and in fact, even earlier than that, the story of the creation, um, which you know is fundamental to Judaism and Christianity and Islam, uh, you know, it starts with the creation of the world by God in the perfect world, and the expulsion of the Garden of Eden is the punishment of our species uh, by the Good Lord, environmentally and ecologically. You know, we have to suffer famines, we have to try and grow crops in the dust. So people have always worried about over-exploitation and of being punished uh, by environmental catastrophe. So I think that hasn't changed. I think what did what what is sharply different is that the Enlightenment or the so-called Enlightenment and the advance of the sciences, where we believe that science can solve everything, um, has a has a silver has a has a dark edge. So science, of course, and medical advancement have allowed us to make the world have the longest life expectancy ever. Any child born listening while listening to our programme, you know, we'll, we'll have the highest chance of having of being literate anywhere in the world. I love the idea of a child actually being born listening to this programme. Well, they're, they're, maybe their mother will be. Let's, let's, let's hope, you know, labour's a terrible thing. Uh, so good luck any, any mothers who are giving birth while listening. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the, the sciences have driven so much wonderful change, but also it's given us a conviction that we can always stay in charge. And so those, those terrifying quotes about how humans should tame nature and we should put it in its place were sort of exemplified under authoritarian systems, particularly in under Mao's China and in the Soviet Union under Lenin and Stalin. The belief that, you know, enough dynamite, enough human labour that you could throw at making canals and building in places that were uninhabitable, that you could make the world function, you know, that that's not unique to authoritarian systems. So, you know, for example, in today's world in the United States, uh, one in six new homes in Florida built in floodplains. And you know you can't stay ahead of nature. You can't beat the system. Uh, there's a new report that came out last year which suggests that in, in the US, about a third of the population, around 100 million people, are living already in a zone which in 25 years' time, with current projections, which may change, will be having uh, 50 degrees centigrade summers. And you, you can beat that through technology, uh, air conditioning, for example. Uh, but you know in Saudi Arabia, where there's not a single river, or a single lake, Saudi Arabia at the moment spends about 700,000 barrels of oil per day in keeping their air conditioning going. And humans are probably not designed to live in those kinds of conditions. And if you can find a way to do that cleanly and renewably, then that's fine. But if the price you pay is those 700,000 barrels of oil uh, put carbon emissions into the atmosphere that pollute, and you know it's not just the Saudis, lots of people over use their over-air conditioning, it reaches a point where not just you change the climate, you change air, air, air purity levels. So in Southeast Asia, 99.9% of the population live in conditions that are, are considered below standards acceptable by the World Health Organization. And on average, for every single man, woman and child living in Southeast Asia, there's an average loss of life of, expe of expectancy of one point one and a half years. You know, citizens in Delhi, for example, uh, effectively smoke the equivalent of two packets of cigarettes per day because air quality is so poor. We really so, are our own worst enemies, aren't we? So, so, it, so it's, it's how do you live sustainably and how do you, how do you not just stop the hand cut? How do you live in a way that obviously 
uh, we need to be more mindful of our environment. And right now, we're spending uh, 1.6% of the world's natural resources every year. And if you if you spend more than you earn, then the bank eventually cashes in. Mm. And I think that that's the situation where we face right now. It's, it's how do you find global governance that allows change quite rapidly and allows us to, to maybe lower the horizons of what we expect in our in our in our in our short term win for long term gains, but as as the case as Australia has shown very effectively, uh, the the ways in which Australia has become much more efficient in its uh, uses of fossil fuels, its clean energies, etc. You don't have to sacrifice economic growth uh, for environmental protections, and some of those protections in Australia in the last twenty years uh, have reduced and produced much cleaner, better environments. But the challenge is, in my world the 496 most polluted cities on earth are all in Asia. And it's how to get the offshoring and factories in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, China, that make stuff for Australian and other consumers cheaper than they otherwise would be. How do we, how do we all work together to make sure that we all have a long-term future rather than burn ourselves to a crisp? Mm. Um, I must say there's so many parts of your book which are absolutely fascinating, which we just don't have time to go into, which is a, a great shame because I learned so many things uh, reading it, Peter, about particularly history over about the last uh, four to 500 years. But look, you know, you argue, um, you know, what's new about the era we're in now is that uh, where in the past a climatic event like a volcano might have affected different parts of the planet in different ways. What we're seeing now is actually a, a globally consistent change in weather patterns, aren't we? That's right. I mean, normally in other periods in history, you find regions that warm or cool and often it takes a long time for those processes usually decades, often in centuries. Uh, right now, it's the acceleration that's the problem. So uh, humans have burnt 85% of their fossil fuel since the end of the Second World War. Uh, they they burnt 50% uh, since 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down. And that pace of change obviously has climatic impacts. But you know also the globalisation that we've had as a result, which has been great for lots of people, particularly the global poor, but also for many people around the world, uh, you know, the great prosperities and the ways which we shared better than perhaps we did in the past. Um, but th- those intensifications, the way we trade, also mean that we get invasive species that bring damage. And some of those, are the, like the emerald ash borer, which can establish itself in ecosystems that are not native, produce catastrophic failure of biodiversity collapse in measuring however you want in terms of hundreds of millions of trees or tens of billions of dollars you know it depends which you think is more important but the ways in which we live do have consequences and it's not just about being clean with our fossil fuels it's about a wider package around how do we engage with that natural world around us and what's our own role as 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 human beings within within cascading ecosystems but you know some of the, some of those numbers are are terrifying in terms of the change that not might happen but has happened in the last 30 years you know the, the numbers of amphibian species 50% almost of amphibian species are globally at risk you know 3 billion birds all gone and i think that the 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 way in which animals are respond and plants and pathogens are responding and you know we we talked a bit about disease but of the 500 or so emerging infectious diseases about 2 thirds are highly triggered by climatic changes, almost all of them by warming. And some of those things will come towards us. So hopefully we need to be learning lessons about how to live sustainably, uh, how to clear up our air, how to work globally so that we don't just defer and push ecological problems to parts of the world we can't see, but also how do we work better to deal with infectious diseases and response. You know, there are some really important lessons from the last few years. And governments around the world... Uh, liberal democracies, authoritarian and otherwise, should be planning and thinking ahead quite aggressively around what do you need to keep the, the wheels on the bus because um, you know, it looks like that we've got a series of fragmentation points coming towards us. Uh, Peter Frankopan is my guest on Nightlife. You're with Suzanne Hill on this Friday night. His new book is called The Earth Transformed. Uh, I think one final question, Peter. I mean, you talk a lot, you know, about, you know, obviously the, the climate's warming. There's all sorts of problems. It has warmed naturally and cooled naturally over time, but we're in a period now where uh, we are causing it. And then there's all these other things you talk about, the loss of biodiversity, the, the filthy air that... That causes premature death for so many people. But you kind of point out that a volcano at any moment could just do us in anyway. Is that, is that fair? Well, you know, we, we, we've, got, we've got somebody sitting in Moscow who might reach for the big red button 
um, you know, and, and change the world's climate and what life as we know it. Uh, you know, when when uh, Donald Trump was in the White House and on the, uh, the Capitol Hill riots on the sixth of January, uh, the head of the U.S. Army, Mike Milley, the commander, chair of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, communicated with his opposite number in Beijing and said if he was told to launch conventional or non-conventional weapons at China, he'd be able to give a little bit of warning. And so uh, if you think humans are our worst enemy, then don't discount the idiocy of major confrontation and war that would have not just human disasters in blast zones, but even a small-scale modelled nuclear contact between relatively minor nuclear powers would lead to 10% loss of global calorie production. And that's a lot. So that could happen. Volcanic eruptions, likewise. Uh, yesterday, I, I track very closely with uh, with some of NASA's uh, programs around asteroid impacts. Yesterday, um, yesterday Thursday, literally, NASA said that they've been tracking an object they hadn't seen before. And they said, uh, the good news is that it's only a small chance it's going to hit Earth in 2045. Uh, but they're pretty sure that it will miss. But there is a margin of error that we should be worried about. That's very And those, th- those kinds of things, uh, you know, we want Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis up in space as soon as we can. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the DART program that was successful in diverting the course, uh, 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 you know, those things are really important because our Earth has been smacked by craters and smacked by uh, impactors from before. So all, all of those things, uh, big volcanic eruptions, they come relatively regularly, relatively predictably. And as the big uh, US volcanic survey put it uh, last year, rather ominously quoting Benjamin Franklin, they said, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. And uh, I think all of those things around thinking that we are much more fragile than we think, that going to sleep every night with a smile on your face, looking forward to the ashes, you know, we need everything to work well. And the good news, if, if you're a historian, by and large, like a really well-built car, almost all the time, things in our species do work well. Almost all the time, we can think about Mozart and, uh, you know, and the Beatles and the, the, the wonderful foods that we have and the ways which we cooperate. And we, we do a lot of that really, 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 really well. But you need one thing to go wrong. You know, one bat in Wuhan, uh, one person who decides that it's time to meet his maker, and it probably will be his maker on her maker in terms of who's more likely to press the button, always a psychopathic man. Uh, but those, those ways in which we, we should prepare for what what difficulties look like and the history that, you know, and so kind to have me on, you know, that hundreds of centuries that we, many centuries we didn't even talk about, seeing that there are all these cases where we either all rise together or we all fail together. Mm. And that I think is quite telling in, in the world of, of the 21st century. And I suppose given that there are all these factors you've just talked about that are completely beyond our control, I guess, uh, know what we can change and uh, perhaps look at look at taking care of those things that are within our power to change. Peter, um, we could probably talk all night, but <laughs> you'd run out of voice and it might bore the pants off people by the time we're into our fifth hour. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on Nightlife uh, with me tonight to talk about The Earth Transformed. Absolute pleasure, Suzanne. It's going to take me, it took me, it took me nine years to write this book after Silk Road, so I hope to see you in nine years' time again. If you don't ring me and don't want me back on, it's because I spoke either too fast or too long. And, and uh, listeners, if you enjoyed it, uh, please thanks Suzanne, for having me. It's, it's such a pleasure to come on and, and talk about history. It's a privilege to have a platform like this, and thank you so much for being so generous. Uh, Peter Frankaban and The Earth Transformed. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.